Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes a piece of data grabs you and won't let go, which is what happened to Dariush Mozafarian. These are astronomical risks. Mozafarian is a cardiologist and he's Dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. And the risks that he's talking about became clear to him just over the last several weeks as data started to emerge about who was ending up hospitalized for COVID-19. So New York City, uh, the hospital systems there published a very nice study that if someone has a you know, uh, moderate obesity, a bo body mass index of 30 to 40, they're about fourfold more likely to be hospitalized. And if they have severe obesity with a body mass index over 40, they have a sixfold higher risk of being hospitalized. If, if they have diabetes, they have about a threefold higher risk of being hospitalized. As doctors and researchers in New York, which has seen so many cases of COVID-19, as they crunched the numbers on what conditions resulted in hospitalization, it became clear to them obesity was the most important factor. One of the researchers at NYU noted it was more important in determining hospitalization than diabetes or high blood pressure. It was more important than pulmonary disease, cancer, kidney disease, coronary disease. If you think of smoking as an example, right, smoking increases the risk of heart disease. You know, it's one of the biggest risks and smoking increases the risk of heart disease by about two or threefold, right? So this is, this is the same kind of thing for COVID. Wow. Being obese or having diabetes is, is a massive risk for, for poor outcomes. And this wasn't just seen in New York. This has been seen in every country that's looked at it. This was seen in Italy. Okay. This has been seen in the United Kingdom. This has been seen in China. This has been seen in overall national data that the CDC has published on, on COVID. Mozafarian argues that this data hasn't gotten nearly enough attention, and we're not doing nearly enough about it, because he says the public should know that metabolic health can be improved over the course of just a few weeks, even if you can't change your weight. Yet there has been no public discussion about how to do that, though we will have that discussion coming up. And the discussion needs to be had because, as a nation, we are in a very vulnerable situation. About half of all American adults, half, have diabetes or prediabetes, kind of the earlier stage leading into diabetes. And three in four American adults, three in four, are overweight or obese. And so very few of us are actually healthy. And COVID is basically, you know, like pouring gasoline on a, on a smoldering fire um, and causing, you know, the, the very severe disease and hospitalizations that we're seeing. Data from across the country has shown that more than six in 10 hospitalizations for COVID are attributable to obesity. And that's true across genders. It's true across races and ages. It's not a statistic that has been widely discussed. And that worries Mozafarian. Mosafarian says America is essentially dealing with two tragedies happening at the same time. Um, you know, we're really seeing a fast pandemic in COVID-19 on top of a slow pandemic of obesity and diabetes that's been no less devastating, um, but has happened slowly over about 40 years, as opposed to COVID-19 happening over several months. And that slow pandemic of obesity and diabetes is interacting actually with the fast pandemic um, in, in a terrible way in that people who have poor metabolic health, obesity, diabetes in particular, also kidney disease, um, other conditions, people who have poor metabolic health 
are particularly at high risk for poor outcomes from COVID-19. Which, he says, boils down to a simple, painful reality. If we had a metabolically healthy population going into this without the rates of obesity, diabetes, hypertension, kidney disease, heart disease um, that we have, this disease would have been much less worse and um, wouldn't have overwhelmed our healthcare system and our hospitals and crushed our economy. And so these interlinkages of this fast and slow pandemic, I think, are really crucial for, for us to understand and address, both for COVID-19, but also for the future pandemics that are sure to come. There's still a lot to find out about COVID-19, but clues as to how metabolic health impacts outcomes may come from other countries. Consider South Korea and California, which have similar size populations, though South Korea actually has about 10 million more people. Well, California's had about 5,000 COVID deaths. South Korea has had about 300. Many in the U.S. have chalked that up to South Korea's amazing testing capabilities, and that may be the explanation. But South Korea has an almost identical number of deaths per capita as Japan, a country where it's actually quite hard to get a test and relatively few have been given. What do South Korea and Japan have in common? Well, they've got the lowest obesity rates in the industrialized world, by quite a bit. America sits at the other extreme, with the highest obesity rate, by quite a bit. You know, we have a obesity rate, the whole population, including children, uh, we have an obesity rate of about 32%, and Japan's obesity rate is about 3.5%, almost 4%. Okay. So tenfold difference. And Japan... That's a huge difference, Huge right? difference. Huge. And Japan, which has you know one of the longest-lived populations in the world... Um, also very healthy diet on average, which is crucial. And we should really talk about food and all this because food is really the underlying driver of, of obesity. Japan, which has healthy eating and a lean population, has done extremely well and baffled, baffled scientists. Why is Japan doing so well? And of right. course, I think culturally, you know, um, Japan, probably people, this has been, been written about, you know, they're, they're better at following um, government guidance and they're used mm. to, you know, Countries in Asia have dealt with some of these prior outbreaks before, are more used to wearing masks and other things. So, of course, there's other reasons. It can't just be the obesity. But, but I, I really believe that that's a major contributor. And 40,000 people uh, died in May in the United States from COVID-19. 40,000 Americans died. That's, that's just horrendous to think about. In one month, we had 40,000 deaths. And yet, at the same time, in that same month, 40,000 Americans died directly of diet-induced cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, and cancers. Not all diabetes, obesity, diabetes, and cancers, that, that's even higher. But from estimates that we and others have done, directly diet-induced diabetes, obesity, heart disease, and cancers, 40,000 Americans died in the same month and the month before that and the month before that, and the month before that, and the month before that. So the scale of human devastation of diet-related diseases is massive, and the healthcare costs and the disparities and, and health inequities this is causing was already massive. And what COVID has done is you know, laid all that bare and exacerbated it, worsened it um, for, for the nation. 
So when you think about that 3-4% obesity rate in Japan, um, one of the things that's striking to me is Japan is a much older country. The median age is um, late 40s versus the U.S., where the medi- our median age is, is late 30s. And we keep hearing coronavirus is really something it strikes older people. Now, is that true? Um, or do older people just tend to be maybe more overweight or more diabetic or have like other kinds of issues in the U.S.? Well, it's certainly true that a lot of things in the United States that we think of as age-related diseases are lifestyle-related diseases that get worse with age. And that's true. One of the best examples is high blood pressure. You know, scientists and doctors used to think that, oh, you know, blood pressure just goes up with age. It's it's a normal thing that happens. And in fact, in the 50s and 60s, there was controversy about whether high blood pressure should be even treated in older adults. And people said, no, you shouldn't even treat it. It's normal. Well, we've since learned very clearly that, you know, if if countries that have healthy diets, um, low salt, lots of fruits and vegetables and nuts and other foods rich in, you know, minerals and vitamins and and other nutrients have very, very different rates of rise in blood pressure with aging, very, very gradual or or even in some countries almost no uh, rise in blood pressure with, with age. And so, you know, in the United States, we think of age as a risk factor for being sick, but it's really, you know, we have the cumulative impact of poor lifestyle. It's not the normal human condition to age and be, um, you know, overweight and have diabetes and have heart disease and have obesity. Of course, people with eventually die of something. And, and people ask me that all the time. What if we all had healthy lifestyle? It's not like we'll live forever. That's true, but but study after study has shown among Americans, people who have reasonably healthy lifestyles, they exercise, they walk, they move, they don't smoke, they have a reasonable weight, they eat a minimum healthy diet. Not only do they live longer, but they live much, much healthier lives. And so their, their years of illness, their expenses from illness are compressed into just the very, very end of their life. And they're, and they're mm. active until the very end. In contrast, you know, people who get chronic conditions and diabetes is really the, the top of the list. They have years and years of, of suffering and unnecessary medical costs and are quite sick. So, so I think it's absolutely right that you know a country like Japan, that's a very healthy country from a lifestyle perspective in particular, they have a very one of the healthiest diets in the world, that that has protected their population against many, many diseases and, and very likely including COVID. I want to back up a little bit. And uh, one of the things that was striking to me in this issue of obesity was that uh, the risk of being hospitalized, which increased a lot with obesity, was true across ages. It was across races. It was across genders. So it's impossible to just say, Oh, you know, that category of people, you know, men or whatever, like that's, that's, those are the only people who have to worry. I don't have to worry. In fact, it seems like obesity was just a plain old enormous risk factor across all categories. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the same was true for diabetes. And we don't know as much about the virus to understand why, but inflammation, poor function of the blood vessels um, are very, very likely to be at least partially involved. And it doesn't matter your age or your race or your sex. If you have obesity or diabetes or, or even worse, both, 
um, that's who is having the really poor outcomes with, with COVID. And in fact, after age, which as you mentioned and we've discussed, age is, a, is actually a, in some ways also just a marker for other diseases. After age, obesity was the top overall risk factor for poor outcomes with COVID. Okay. So we have a certain amount of time um, until we get a vaccine. Probably. I guess we could. it's possible we could never get a vaccine. But let's say we get one. It could be in nine months. It could be in two years and nine months. Nobody knows. Um, you know, obesity is not something you just change in a day. So is there anything that we can do as a country or as individuals between now and, you know, when the end of this comes? Or are we just kind of stuck in the situation that we're in? This is one of the most exciting and, and um, positive things about, about lifestyle and metabolic health is, is how quickly it works. And this is also one of the least well-recognized and, and understood points about the benefits of lifestyle. People think that if you're obese, right, it takes years and years to, to deal with that and to get healthy. Right. But many really well-controlled trials have shown that you know, if you're overweight or obese and have poor metabolic health, and you just change what you eat without weight loss, you just change the quality of what you eat, within four to six weeks, four to six weeks, dramatic improvements in many, many metabolic parameters, um, better than huh. you could get with any single drug uh, alone. And the same is also true for physical activity. Whatever your weight is, if you start exercising meaningfully, your metabolic health improves very, very quickly, within, within weeks, actually. And so, you know, even without COVID-19, uh, Diet-related illnesses, lifestyle-related illnesses were, were the, the leading cause of poor health in the United States, were the leading cause of preventable healthcare spending in the United States, were one of the leading causes of health-related disparities in the United States. And yet, you know, we were kind of just collectively shrugging about it when it came to policy actions because, again, it's a slow pandemic over 40 years and people assume yeah. this is normal. With COVID, we have you know, not only an opportunity, but we must tackle this, right? We could, with sound policy, start to improve the, the country's metabolic health within a few months, actually, and over a year or two have a major impact. Now, there's a range of things that could do that, but at the very basic minimum level, you know, we have governors and public health officials coming out and telling the population about hand washing and social distancing and mask wearing and, and other things. And of course, the response hasn't been perfect. Not everybody's following it exactly. But overall, the national response has been really impressive, actually, really kind of mm -hmm. incredible. So I just wonder, why isn't it that our, our governors and our other public health officials nationally and at the state level aren't coming out every day at the same time and saying, you know, and why don't you try, let's all try to exercise a little bit more today and if you can't exercise, at least we're all cooking at home for the first time in recent American history. Uh, why don't we all try to just shift our diet and eat a little bit healthier? Um, you know, we should be using that moment as a teaching moment to help people shift towards healthier diets. And of course, there's real disparities right now in food access and ability to buy yeah. food. So we have to be addressing that, that as well. And that's really, really crucial. So I don't want to minimize this and say this is just about choice. Some people fundamentally have, have difficulty with even accessing healthy foods. But at a minimum, we could be telling everyone to the extent you can, let's try to improve metabolic health. At a population level, that could have a massive impact. A 5%, 10% improvement in metabolic health, even without weight loss, could have a really, really uh, important impact on COVID-19. 
We're going to pause here for just a minute. We're going to come back with Dariush Mozafarian. He's a cardiologist and dean in the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. We're talking about obesity and COVID-19, what the data tells us, what we can do about it. If you want to check out some of the data that we've talked about uh, for yourself, from comparisons between obesity rates in different countries, as we discussed, to um, what New York doctors have found as they have examined risk factors for COVID-19 patients, we've got a bunch of that data on our website. That is innovationhub.org. We're going to be right back with Dr. Mozafarian right after this. From WGBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In mid-May, a group of researchers who had been tracking COVID-19 patients in France found that those who wound up in the hospital were much more likely to be obese than those in the general population. A previous French study in April had uncovered the same thing. Meanwhile, New York researchers who had been diligently tracking patients in the city's busy hospitals were also finding that obesity was a problem. In fact, it turned out to be a better indicator of hospitalization than coronary disease or kidney disease or diabetes. To not grasp this moment and to you know, use the power of policy and structure change to, to start to address this would be such a lost opportunity. Dariush Mozafarian is a cardiologist and dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. He says, we've been dealing with a slow pandemic of obesity and its devastating fallout for 40 years. And now a fast pandemic has collided with the slow pandemic, which he argues is why it's time for a change, a moonshot on diet now. It's not just pie in the sky, let's fix food. There was actually concrete things that, that we could do. How would Mozafarian change things? Well, three main ways. First, he says, we need national coordination. In the wake of 9-11, the federal government realized it was imperative to pull together various strands of intelligence. This crisis has made it clear. The same needs to happen with food and nutrition. We have a much bigger federal investment in food and nutrition, at least $150 billion, that's equally fragmented. So I think it's time for Congress to create uh, an office of the National Director of Food and Nutrition that would report to the president and coordinate food and nutrition as a national security issue. This is a national security issue to keep us resilient in the face of, of pandemics. Second, we need to make sure that the money we spend on healthcare impacts how we eat. Amazingly, amazingly, that the per capita spending on healthcare in the United States is, is $11,000 per year. So for every man, woman, and child in the United States, we spend $11,000 on healthcare per year. For a fa okay. family of four, $44,000. That's more than that median income, the average income of many families, right? So we should be using just some of those dollars for healthier eating to reduce healthcare costs and make people healthier. And third, there's got to be more research on diet-related topics. What natural substances might help us develop better immune systems? How can we optimize weight loss in different people? Mosafarian argues, for something that everyone does every day, eat, 
there's not nearly enough money spent on nutrition science. And he believes this sort of diet moonshot can unite liberals and conservatives. Consider a group called Mission Readiness, whose goal is to defend America. 750 retired admirals and generals has put out several reports saying that childhood obesity is a national security threat because the majority of young Americans can't enroll in the military anymore and the number one medical reason is, is obesity. Uh, and so, and so oh. these voices have been fragmented. I actually think if you start to talk about the human suffering and the disparities and the health issues, that brings policy makers along. But if you talk about the national security threats, and especially if you talk about the economic consequences, the trillions of dollars we're spending on, on health care, and some of that could be brought back into the budget through, through better lifestyle and better nutrition, the, the shutting down of our economy with COVID, if that hasn't woken up you know, business leaders, right, nothing else will. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that even under the current, you know, current Congress and current administration, things like this could move. And whoever is in the next administration, right, this is, this is not a progressive issue only. This is, this is an issue that's about national security, about our economy, about the economic competitiveness of American businesses who are, who are you know, spending so much more than other countries on healthcare premiums. Um, and it's also about children and also about disparities and you know, helping you know, black and brown and other uh, Americans of, of, of all colors. And it's also about the environment. And so, and so in my conversations with policy leaders, when you actually show them the information and you, you um, explain that these things are, are addressable, there, there, there can be movement. And there has been movement. So as I mentioned in the, farm, the last farm bill, there was some money put in to test produce prescription programs. Um, just a, two weeks ago, um, the, there's a food as medicine working group in, in the U.S. House, which is amazing in and of itself. That, that, that started about two years ago. And just a couple of weeks ago, the food as medicine working group put out a bill to test uh, medically tailored meals in, in Medicare, uh, which is okay. uh, to give the, the sickest people, actually deliver them food paid by Medicare, fully cooked meals prepared, brought to them at home to, to help keep them out mm. of the hospital. So I think there's actually movement. Um, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I, I think that, you know, the, the economic consequences of not acting compared with the human suffering um, should be able to bring together a coalition of sensible people to, to, to move on this. Let me ask you about something that you referred to, which is um, that, you know, at the moment, because things have shut down, one of the things we see here we are talking about obesity really, really increasing people's risk for hospitalization for COVID, you know, and, and to an incredible degree. At the very same moment, because everything started to shut down, kids are not in school. We've seen a skyrocketing in terms of Brookings has looked at what percentage of moms now say, like, I can't feed my kids enough, my young children. Uh, and that affects millions and millions of people. Can you give me a sense of where you see us in terms of that issue of food, too, which seems like not something that's not something we should ignore, even while we talk about food and COVID? You know, I mean, this is really an embarrassment for our country that so many people are food insecure. And of course, it's skyrocketed with COVID. And so, you know, before COVID, um, about one in nine Americans experienced food insecurity in any given year, which means that they didn't know for sure that they were going to be able to put food on the table for their families and had to, 
forego buying food because of some other cost, um, like their rent or medicines or something like that. Uh, and so, and so it was already one in nine Americans, and it's been you know projected, although it's moving so quickly, that it may have even doubled. And so now maybe it's about one in four Americans, one in five Americans are, are food insecure. Just just stunning, stunning numbers, and we can't ignore that. And at the same time, what's striking is those same. Americans are the ones that are at highest risk for obesity and diabetes. So it's not that they're not getting calories per se, it's that they're getting the worst food um, that's available on average. And food banks are really trying to change that. I mean, the, the Greater Boston Food Bank here talks about food as medicine, how they really understand it's not just about calories, it's about getting people quality food. But But that's challenging, right? That's challenging for cost, it's challenging for you know, knowledge and time of how to prepare foods like that. So, so still on average, you know, lower income Americans, food insecure Americans are getting the, the most packaged, processed, cheapest, worst yes. food. And that's something that, you know, again, progressive Americans, progressive policy leaders will care about more deeply than anything you can imagine, but others won't care about that so much. And so, we have to link that back to what it's doing to healthcare costs and healthcare spending, what it's doing to our economy to get really a nonpartisan view of this and have action happen. If we actually price the cost of a soda, what it does to the health of a person, what it does to downstream healthcare costs, what it does to risk of obesity and, and diabetes and heart disease, right? It would cost much more. Uh, and on the other hand, if we price the true costs of nuts or fruits or beans mm -hmm. or fish or healthy plant oils or vegetables, they should cost much less. And and there are ways to do that directly. There are ways to do that directly through incentive disincentive programs. Um, there are ways to do that through tax policy. There's ways to do that through healthcare. Just earlier, you know, we discussed produce prescription programs. That's essentially a way right. to subsidize fruit and vegetable purchases so they're less expensive. I actually think you know that should be something that would be very interesting to consider in these next bills. Congress is passing bills to deal with COVID. It should be time to test produce prescription programs. It's a way to help farmers. This is like writing a prescription, a doctor saying like, you can get what, like free broccoli and cauliflower and carrots, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Free or, or reduced. It depends on, on okay. the different programs. And then, you know, and it's, and it's generally for people who are low income or food insecure and have some medical condition like diabetes. And okay. programs that have done this, like Geisinger Health in Pennsylvania tested this, um, in, in patients with diabetes, they actually built a grocery store on, in the hospital. They called it a fresh food pharmacy with an F. I thought that was cute, a fresh food pharmacy. And <laughs> patients who were you know, food insecure and had type 2 diabetes were given a prescription by their doctor to go fill up weekly groceries uh, at this grocery store, which had, was free. And it wasn't just for the patient, it was for their whole family. They could pick up groceries for the whole family. And it cost the healthcare system, it cost Geisinger Health about $2,000 per patient per year to pay for the groceries. I mean, it's not nothing, right? That's, that's not cheap. Um, more than right. SNAP, that's, that's higher than SNAP uh, pays for, per person. And, but they found that it saved them tens of thousands of dollars per patient in healthcare costs, tens of thousands of dollars. They got a huge return mm. on investment. And so they expanded it to the whole Geisinger Health system. So, so that's a, an example of a private healthcare system that sort of saw the power of food as medicine. And so that's, again, something that we should be doing, I think, considering right now this year, because it'll, it'll help with food insecurity, it'll help with farmers who are having produce, produce rotting, and it'll help with health right. and COVID. So it's like a triple win. 
So finally, if you're listening to this and you're not a governor, because we've kind of given them a roadmap for what they should do, um, if you're just an individual person and you're worried, I mean, a lot of people are about um, getting sick, what would you say in terms of how you could eat and what you could do yourself that would be a good idea for the months that lie ahead? Three take-home messages for kind of your own eating. So number one is it's not about your weight, it's about your metabolic health. And so if you start eating healthier food, you will be metabolically healthier even if your weight doesn't change that much. And so don't think of it as, you know, I have to lose 10 pounds. You know, think of it as I'm just going to eat healthier food. And for most people, weight will very slowly actually start to come off uh, anyway. But, But it's not about your weight, it's about your metabolic health. Second is it doesn't take a long time. And so again, within weeks, within weeks of eating a a healthier diet, people's metabolic health improves. And then third, in terms of specific recommendations, you know, the, the, it's, it's for me, I think the science supports a fairly straightforward, you know, recipe. So there's, there's good foods, there's protective foods, focus on the protective foods, try to fill up and eat as more protective foods. Don't don't just think about the bad, think about the good. And so that's foods like fruits and nuts and beans in particular, um, true, you know, minimally processed whole grains, vegetables, plant oil, seafood, yogurt with the probiotics, all of those are, are healthy. There's a bunch of foods that are kind of probably more neutral. They're not good or bad for you, but neutral is okay. You need variety in your life. So things like cheese and poultry and eggs, you know, those are perfectly fine things to have in your diet. It's actually not super bad or super good for you either way. And then the things to avoid, the, the number one thing by far is all the refined starch and, and sugar. And I say starch, not just sugar, because there's much more starch in the food supply. So crackers, white bread, most breakfast cereals, energy bars, you know, just it, it's, it's about half the calories in the food supply almost actually are, are poor quality. Wow poor quality starch and sugar almost. Uh, and so mm. that's the big thing, like what most of the aisles of the grocery store are actually. Right. I was going to say, that's what mostly the grocery store is. There's, yeah, there are carrots, but there's a lot of boxes of things. Yeah. So I think if you avoid starch and sugar, try to really cut down, you know, white bread, crackers, cereal bars, all, all these packaged processed foods, candies, and and focus on those healthier foods, um, you will see, see a benefit. And and I say that with full recognition of what we talked about, that that's not possible for every American right now. And that's, that's devastating, right? This, this should be the easy diet, the inexpensive diet for all of us. Dariush Mozafarian is Dean of the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts University. Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you so much for having me. And on our website, we're going to have a recent op-ed from Dr. Mozafarian about the intersection between nutrition and the pandemic, plus a look at what research is starting to show about how food may impact COVID-19. That's all at innovationhub.org. And if you want to hear this segment again or you want to share it, you can head to our website or you can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.